Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> well, we'll see if we make it or not. <laughs> we'll begin our reading in verse 22. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired words of God. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We come now to our quotation. And that will be from the Reverend Thomas Adams. When the natural man comes into the temple among the congregation of God's saints, his soul is not delighted with their prayers, praises, psalms, and service. He sees no comfort, no pleasure, no content in their actions. True, he doth not, uh, he cannot. For his understanding is not enlightened to see the hope of their calling and the glorious riches which the spirit of grace and consolation sheds into them. He sees no whit into the awful majesty of God filling all with his glorious presence and ruling all events with his providence, even disposing evil to his glory. Nothing of the beauty, mercy, pity of his Savior sitting at the right hand of his father, not his highness being in heaven, nor yet his nighness to his brethren on earth. Nothing of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the celestial Jerusalem, nor the company of innumerable angels, nor the general assembly and company of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, not of the God, not of God the judge of all, nor the spirits of just men made perfect, nor of Jesus the mediator of the New Testament, nor of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 
What more than a world of happiness doth doth this man's eye not see? Hereupon we call a mere fool a natural. The worldlings have esteemed and misnamed the Christians God fools. The Christians God's fools, but we know them the fools of the world. Well, tough words, hard words, yet true words. So, beloved, we have been speaking about profiting from public worship, how we do that. We talked about several broad principles such as humility and uh, reverence. We talked about the propriety, right, that this is God's service, not ours. Uh, It's his property, if you will. We talked about keeping our foot, that, that is that there is regulation and direction to worship. That flows to us out of the scripture. We wanted to talk about remembering who it is that we, repro- that we approach. We wanted to speak of readiness to hear. We spoke of preparation. Um, and then we began and planned to continue for these next few weeks anyway. Talking about a proper valuation. That if we're going to profit from, from public worship. We're going to have to evaluate it properly. We're going to have to get assign its proper value. Uh, We don't need encouragement. We don't need correction. We don't need um, uh, a goading, if you will, to go upon something that we value. Right? We're there. Oh, you're going to go, I don't know, fill in the blank, you know. um, You're going to go stamp collecting? I know some of you, that's no. Well, whatever the thing is, right? You're going to go hunting. You're going to go fishing. You're going to go bowling. You're going to go bird watching. You're gonna, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm there. You're going to go shopping. I'm there. Not me. Right? You're going to go to church. Ooh. Are, are, we, are we valuing it properly? That's the question that we've been asking over the last couple of weeks. So we started out in Galatians Chapter 4, and as we would not devalue our mother, we should not devalue the church who is our mother, the Jerusalem which is above, the mother of us all. And then we turned to Hebrews chapter 12, and in the first week of our study in Hebrews 12, we looked at the city itself, right? That city, it's spoken of as Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We spoke of those three things. And then we spoke last week of the inhabitants of the city, the first stroke of that, and that's the innumerable company of angels. And we saw as angels there not only the the elect spirits that we would call angels, but we saw also that the word angel means messenger, and that very often ministers are spoken of as angels. And so the ministry of the word is something that also, also should add to that value of the visible church and her ordinances. So that's what we talked about last week. We're going to go on and continue talking about the inhabitants of the city. We talked about the city, and now we're talking about the inhabitants of the city. And so we want to move on to the next phrase, and that is the general assembly. Now we are called the RPCGA, aren't we? Our our denomination is the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly. Well, it's not the same thing. I don't want you to be confused by that moniker, by that name. 
The general assembly here is a, is a word that is used in the Greek language to speak about a, a festal gathering for worship. This is what happens when the people of God come together to worship God. It is a, it's what's called a festal gathering. Festal as, a, as, as opposed to fasting. Fasting would be right wearing sackcloth, but festal would be a time of joy. A time of rejoicing. Like someone say, hey, I'm going to go shopping. You want to go? Yeah, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to church to the festival gathering. You want to go? Yeah, I'm there. Right? There's joy. There's rejoicing. There's, there's comfort. There's all kinds of things that, that ascribe, that adhere to the worship service of the church. That it is called this kind of Festal gathering, a, a festival in the true sense of that word. A true celebration. A true, not a carnal celebration, but a spiritual celebration. It's a solemn assembly. It's like the feasts of old when the Lord met with his people. This is uh, a part of our understanding here of Hebrews 12 that, that we are talking about uh, a visible gathering and not just the invisible church, right? This visible gathering of the church that comes to meet together. Let's look at a few psalms together to reinforce this idea. Uh, we just sang from Psalm 22. Let's go ahead and turn back there. We're getting a lot of mileage out of Psalm 22 today. It was in our readings, our singing, and now we're going to use it as an illustration in verse 25. My praise shall be of thee, in the great congregation, I will pay my vows <coughs> before them that fear him. Note that there are a few things that take place here in this general assembly, in this great congregation. First of all, there's the praise of the Lord. We come together, beloved, to sing praise unto the Lord. It is a blessed thing to be able to do that. It's a blessed thing. Not only is it a blessed thing that we can sing, and who doesn't like to sing? I mean, we all like to sing. But beyond that, beyond just liking the activity, singing, there's something else there, right? What are we singing? We're singing God's own words. We, we're actually singing God's own words back to Him. This is a wonderful blessing that as, as those words are more apt to be laid down in our memory tracks as they're associated with a melody, that it's actually the word of God that's being laid down in our memory tracks, singing unto him. And we need never to worry that our theology will outstrip our hymnology. Isn't that right? There are songs, I kid you not, that I used to sing as a faithful and well-meaning worshiper in churches that I would never sing today because of the horrid doctrine that's in them. I wouldn't do it. But I never can, I never have that fear with the Psalms. Oh, I may advance in my understanding of them, but in my expression of them, there is no advancement. This is the, this is the pinnacle. This is the word of God. And so what does... The Savior say here in verse 25, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. 
And then also, I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Paying my vows. What are, when we sing in the Psalter and we sing of vows that are going on, what are we talking about? We're talking about those vows that we all entered into when we, when we entered into the church, when we vowed or covenanted with the Lord that he would be our sovereign Lord, that we would live according to his commandments, right? That we would receive him and so on. Those are the vows that we're speaking of here. We have vowed to do that, and we're paying those vows before the people of God. There's a social element here that cannot be denied, an element of social encouragement. And beloved, I cannot stress this enough. I have have known people and, and counseled with people that spent years and years and years outside the visible church. Uh, They couldn't find a church that was something enough, right? Faithful enough, godly enough, uh, populous enough, uh, small enough, um, you know, fill in the blanks, right? And they spent years and years outside the visible church, never coming in out of the cold. A former pastor of mine and mentor wrote, wrote a book to that effect called The Visible Church and Outer Darkness. It was a wonderful ecclesiological study of the duty that God's people have to join themselves to an imperfect but faithful church. This social worship that we do together cannot be overemphasized in its importance. This encourages us week by week. It keeps us in the way of uprightness. We will face one another before God every week and we'll face God before one another in every week as we come to hear from Him, as we come to praise Him and sing to Him. There is a particular objectivity and openness, a candor and earnestness that belongs to us as the people of God as we deal with one another in that same kind of openness and as we worship and are naked and open before the Lord together. This is a general assembly. We assemble before the Lord as one covenant people. We are called to the same place for the same duty at the same time. We diminish our individuality for the good of our brothers and sisters that together we may glorify Christ. Let's just think about how we profit from a worship service. One of the ways we profit is by the order. We don't have people talking all at the same time. I, I see some of you, you're dealing with your children during the worship service. They're still learning how to, how to become good auditors, listeners, how to become good hearers of what's going on. And some of you will say to them, When the pastor's talking, we're not supposed to be talking. I hear that. I hear you say that. See, that's good discipline. That's good order. And we all do that together. We do that with one another. And then afterward, what do we do? We go have roast pastor together. Or maybe not roast pastor. But we discuss the sermon together. Right? We want to have those godly conferences afterwards. Since we all, what? We're in the same place and heard the same thing. Uh, we diminish our individuality. Remember how the Apostle Paul will, will speak to the Corinthian church in chapter 14. 
and he's talking about people in the worship service, the prophets, that is the teachers of the church, that have a right to speak to the congregation. Yet he will say, you will not speak over the top of one another. You will speak one by one by one. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Right? We, we diminish our individuality when we come together. We all agree, or if you will, submit to the same time. <laughs> right? The same length of service. The same duration. The same room. The same address. The same this. We, we diminish our individuality for that greater wonder of worshiping the Lord together. And... Beloved, we live in a day when the diminishing of our, of our individuality could use a little dusting off from time to time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, the apostle will say this, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Our individuality is diminished in the general assembly. Rightly so. That's why we're here. Uh, we sing together the same songs. Right? The apostle will, will, will say in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. That is... Let the people that are supposed to lead in those things lead. Don't you get up and start speaking in the middle of someone else. Don't get up and start singing your own thing when everybody else is singing this. No, we come together to sing together. This is a social thing. We bow and unite our desires and minds together in prayer. As Solomon of old led the people before the the great temple that he had built in 1 Kings 8.22. And so it says that Solomon stood up in, in front of them, in front of that temple, as all of the elders of Israel and thousands were gathered. And what did he do? He led them in prayer. When we talk about being led in prayer, beloved, I, I want you to understand, you know, let's take our Wednesday night meeting, for example. When we come, Pastor Riddell opens in prayer, then we sing a psalm. Then we have a short exhortation. And then one of the two elders, Elder Betch or Elder Dillard, will lead us in prayer. That doesn't mean we're not praying. In fact, it better not mean we're not praying. Right? Oh, he's praying. I can, you know, check out. No, we're all praying together. We're just doing this in an orderly way where we all pray the same thing together. And this is why there's an amen at the end of that. Because those were not scripture words that were spoken. Those were words that were offered up and we give our affirmation. Amen, this is truth. I get behind that prayer. I was listening. How could you say amen if you don't listen? How could you say amen if you don't understand? That's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 14. But in that you say amen, that means that you're praying too. Right? Well, let's not be lax in our discipline in that and let our minds wander during prayer. This is a general assembly. We come together for these particular things. This is a part of the value of meeting together. You want to pray by yourself? You can do that. 
Please do. And do it everywhere. Right? All kinds of places. Follow David. Do it when you rise up and lie down. When, you know, seven times a day. When you lie on your bed in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. When tears are wetting your pillow. Pray. Do all of that. But recognize that individual prayers are not the same thing as corporate prayers. When the people of God come together with that greater force, and if, if we were more well-practiced in this, uh, this could be part of our own reformation as we go through this series, if we come to the end of a prayer and we hear a resounding, Amen, from the people, wouldn't that be that greater affirmation? That corporate Amen, wouldn't that be a greater encouragement? Wouldn't that add some force and weight? That we're all behind it? Okay, so in prayer, we hear from the Word together. We have that same instruction from the Lord in common. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8 for a moment. Verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together, notice, as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. How old is that book now? Does anybody have a, anybody venture in any kind of understanding there? Well, if Moses lived about 1450... And this is after the exile, somewhere around 510. We could say in round numbers, it's 950 or 1,000 years that this book has been in the possession of the people of God. About 1,000 years. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaseah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Pediah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashum and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reason, oh, sorry, the reading. Skip down to verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because 
they had understood the words that were declared unto them. What do we see here? We see a congregation coming together as one man to hear the word of the Lord. And their great rejoicing when they heard it because they were given the sense of the scripture. I tell you, beloved, this cannot happen in private. We all eat from the same table, that same spiritual meat and drink. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 22. We all hear and receive that same blessing. And as we do so as a people, we are a part of a whole that is greater than just ourselves. Remember in Numbers chapter 6, you'll remember the ironic blessing that you heard this morning at the end of our worship service. The reason we do that is because the Lord commanded it. In verse 22 of number 6, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they, that is Aaron and his sons, shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. There's nobody else authorized but a minister of the word to give that ironic benediction. Oh, we can give it to one another and people do. They say, Lord bless you and so on and those are well wishes and, and, and that's fine but it's not the same thing. The Lord appointed his priests of old, Aaron and his sons, that highest office of the priesthood in the Old Testament to bless the people of God in the name of God and in so doing to put the Lord's name upon them. That doesn't happen anywhere else. We should crave that benediction at the end of the service. As we do these things then, we join with others of like faith across the globe, across time, united by our bond in Christ, faith in him, and in no other. Psalm 34 is interesting in this regard. We'll just look at a couple of, we'll just pick out a couple of things from Psalm 34. <clears throat> I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. What are the next, what's the next verse? You know this verse. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You can't do that in your closet, beloved. You might be able to do it in your families to a limited extent. But I put it to you that what David is speaking of here is he's speaking of the entirety of the congregation coming together to magnify the Lord. Look at um, verse 7. The angel of the Lord <clears throat> encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. <clears throat> of course, this is speaking about those days when the Lord will <clears throat> protect his congregation. <clears throat> In verse 11, Come ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desires life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. There's a catechism that belongs to the people of God publicly. 
that doesn't obtain anywhere else. Right? The children are invited to come and to hear. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29 for a moment. This has been the Lord's way of doing things ever since he moved the expression of worship to him out of the days of patriarchal families into public uh, services. Right? There was a day... Some people hearken back to that day as if it should be, you know, uh, that which we do today, and it's not. But it was a legitimate practice in times past, in the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, and so on, that their worship was primarily had in families. There was no public worship, except for certain shadows, certain hints that public worship was actually going on somewhere. You know what I'm talking about? For instance, think of Melchizedek. He's a priest of Salem. What's he doing? I don't know. Couldn't tell you. There's this guy, Jethro. He's the priest of Most High God in Midian. Moses, when he leaves Egypt, joins himself to Jethro's household, tends his sheep, and marries his daughter. We're not told much about how Jethro was a priest or what he did as a priest, but we do have these little glimpses of public worship going on, but the Lord institutes it permanently and in spades, if you will, during the days of Moses when there are elders over the church established and then they receive instruction from the Lord as to how to worship him, especially as we turn to Leviticus 23 and find out that they're to have holy convocations in every district of theirs once they get into the land. Remember, in the days of, uh, of Enos, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, right, in the godly line of Seth. What were they doing? We don't know. We're not told. There were short, little glimpses of public worship that took place in the days of the patriarchs. But the worship of Jehovah was generally in families in those days. But not since the days of Moses has that been true. And so it's an error to hearken back to the patriarchal days and say, we have everything we need in our family. Our, our father is prophet, priest, and king over the family, and therefore he can baptize and he can bless and he can preach and he can do all those things. No. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible establishes church office. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we'll look at verse 10. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood to the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, that he may be unto thee a God as he hath said unto thee and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God and also with him that is not here with us this day. For ye know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which ye passed by and you've seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day. 
from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. You see what the Lord says there? You see the great utility of this general assembly that was held in the day of Moses? They came together, they entered into covenant, into oath with the Lord their God. And this was to be a hedge for them and their children and generations to follow. That they belonged to the Lord as a people. Not as private individuals, but as a people. This is that general assembly. Listen to John Owen on this particular section of scripture. For unto those civil and political assemblies, as also that of the church, it was necessary that there should be a local meeting of all that belonged unto them. But the assembly and church here intended are spiritual, and so is their meeting or convention. There never was, nor ever shall be, a local meeting of them all until the last day. At present... Such as is the nature of their society, such is their convention that is spiritual. But yet, all that belong unto the general assembly intended, which is the seat of praise and joy, are obliged by virtue of special institution, whilst they are in this world, to assemble in particular church societies, as I have elsewhere declared. Pretty simple. So that's the phrase, the general assembly. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 12 for a moment, and we'll look at the next phrase that is used. It's called, uh, it's called out by the apostle to be the church of the firstborn. Now we might be tempted, because of our English translation, right, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We might be tempted because... Uh, in our English, it doesn't come out as safely as it might. Um, firstborn, is that a singular or a plural there in the original? That's a good question, isn't it? It's going to change the meaning. If it's the church of the firstborn singular, it means the church of Christ. It belongs to him. If it's the church of the firstborn ones or the firstborns, see, we, that, that doesn't roll off the English tongue very well. If it's the church of the firstborn ones, well, then the meaning is completely different. It's those inheritors who inherit with Christ. And it is the latter, beloved. It's in the plural. It is that together we, as the people of God, are, as Paul will put it in Romans chapter 8, we are co-heirs with Christ. The term firstborn, as we read in Deuteronomy earlier today, chapter 21, we saw that it carried with it some, some particular circumstance, right? It wasn't just, oh, hey, you were the firstborn. Isn't that neat? It wasn't that. It was that there was a double inheritance that came to that firstborn person in each family. He received the double portion. That is, there was a right of inheritance that belonged to him. When we talk about the firstborn in Scripture, we're not simply talking about birth order. So we can pigeonhole your personality. It's not why we're doing that. When we talk about birth order in scripture, we're talking about your inheritance. And so the general assembly and church of the firstborn ones, those are the ones who inherit with Christ as co-heirs with him. And we are reminded of that 
in our gathering together. If all we do is meet alone, then we will not, we will not, or not meet at all. I guess if you're meeting alone, you're not meeting. That was a clunky phrase on my part. Please excuse me. If we're meeting uh, together, we are emphasizing our inheritance together. And if we're not meeting together, we're de-emphasizing that, aren't we? We're recognizing that we are, if you will, alone in this world. Well, so the term inheritor then, or firstborn, is a very special phrase. And why would the people of God not want to identify themselves as those firstborn ones that meet together? Let's look at a few places. Uh, Exodus chapter 4 is where we begin our, our, our investigation. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we'll recognize this as the first chapter when uh, Noah, sorry, Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh, right? This is the beginning of the Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. And in verse 22, thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, the Lord is speaking to Moses and Aaron, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn, and I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Notice how the Lord put the end at the beginning. Now let me ask you this, beloved. Pharaoh actually tried this, didn't he? Okay, Moses and Aaron. Okay, all right. The firstborn ones need to go. Okay. So... You that are men, you'll go. But the children will remain behind. Would that be in keeping with what the Lord is talking about here? Who is this firstborn that he's talking about? Who is it? It's all of them. It's all of them together. There is a church of the firstborn ones here in Exodus chapter 4. Now we know that this is a visibly considered assembly, a nation... And that there were many unbelievers among them. Yet, the Lord calls them his firstborn and says to Pharaoh, You let my son go. You let my firstborn go. He will not inherit here in Egypt. I have another inheritance for him in Canaan. And I am his inheritance. Isn't that right? Beloved, do you consider yourselves as part of this assembly? As part of this general assembly and church of the firstborn? Heirs with Christ, the special favored ones, the inheritor of the double portion before the Lord. We are reminded of this, and we are reminded of it in the plural here in Hebrews chapter 12. Together, together we make up this company of those who are the, the firstborn. Together we inherit with Christ. This should raise up our estimation of this visible assembly because we meet with those that we can rightly consider who? Fellow heirs with us with Christ. We are inheriting the same things, beloved. So we turn to Hosea chapter 11, verse When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And as they called them, 
so they, uh, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Baalim and burned incense to graven images. Well, it's a sad thing to remember about that firstborn son of the Lord's. Yet that is true. They went astray from the Lord. And so we understand that the status, just simply being identified with, with that church of the firstborn, it's not enough. We must actually be those inheritors by faith in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Well, these are those reminders, right, that, that we are... Um, the Lord's firstborn. But we're not the Lord's firstborn considered as individuals. This is the church of the firstborn ones. That general assembly and church of those who have gathered together to encourage one another and strengthen one another. Not in any nationality or bloodline, but all who inherit in Christ the true children of Abraham by faith. The rights and privileges gained by Christ as the covenant-keeping Son belong to all who are in Him. And they are called a church or the assembly of those firstborn ones. You'll remember that there was a time in Abraham's house, a moment of crisis, when Ishmael began to mock Isaac. Do you remember the word of the Lord to Abraham? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the, the son of the bondwoman shall not inherit with the son of promise. Right? Beloved, we are the children of promise. If we believe in Christ, if we are united to him by faith. So, church of the firstborn ones. This is not a nationality, and this is why the apostle can tell us that it's, you know, it's not any particular people group, right? There's, no, there's, no, there's neither bond nor free. There's neither Jew nor Greek and so on. Barbarian, Scythian, bond, free. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Yet we are made heirs of the house. There are people that, are, that don't understand this principle... And they're like Esau. Turn with me to Genesis 33 for a moment. You'll remember Esau, right? The unbelieving son of Isaac. And Jacob, the believing son. And it's not that Jacob was without his troubles. He was without his troubles. He, he was not without his troubles, of course. Yet, he was the child of promise. And Esau was of the wicked one. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, we hear in the prophet and then also in the apostle. Both Old and New Testament tell us that. So this is when Jacob is coming home from the land of Laban and he has with him a great company. 
Um, he has his wives and his children, and he has droves upon droves of animals. Remember, the Lord made him rich in the land of Laban. He took all of Laban's cattle and gave it to him, to Jacob. And so he comes back, and he's got lots of presents for Esau. You remember that, right? And so first the drove goes out, and, and, and the servant that leads the drove to Esau, Esau will ask the question, what are these? Oh, well, these are a present from my Lord Jacob, thy brother. Thy servant. And that goes on over and again, right? What is the right thing for Esau to do at this point in his own personal history? What should Esau be doing? Well, if he's seeking the Lord, what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to attach himself to Jacob. Right? Where is the special revelation, or can I say it this way? Where is the church of the firstborn ones in that day? Where is it? It's with Jacob. It's not with Esau. Okay? So what does Esau do? Finally, he and Jacob meet. They hug. They fall on each other's neck. They weep a little bit, right? It's a very emotional, uh, you know, a kind of uh, hallmark moment, if you will. Right? Okay, so now we turn down to verse 9. And Esau, well, let's go up to verse 6. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, this is Jacob speaking, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast to thyself. Well, I think those are pregnant words. They're not only, I don't need your stuff. I don't need your religion. I don't need your fellowship. If you want, Jacob, you can follow me to Mount Seir. You hear what Esau's saying there? They were promised a different land, not Seir. What is Esau saying? Well, he doesn't trust the promises of God. Take thee, I pray, my blessing, verse 11, that is brought to thee because God hath dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him, and finally then Esau took it. And then he said, let us take our journey and let us go. I will go before thee. And he said unto him, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender and the flocks and herds with young are with me. If the men should overdrive them in one day, the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over uh, before his servant, I will lead on softly as the cattle that goeth before me. It's just a very polite way of Jacob saying, you, we, we, we both know I have my place to go and you have your place to go. What should Esau have said? Jacob, lead me and mine into the land of promise that we might inherit with you. But he wouldn't. He had traded away that inheritance, that right of firstborn, for a mess of meat, for pottage. Beloved, I tell you, there may be people alive at this moment that are trading away that same birthright by refusing regular attendance upon the worship of God, joining themselves with the church of the firstborn, and unwittingly they are inheriting something else. It is possible. 
Finally, he says, these are the names that are written in heaven. The church of the firstborn ones whose names are written in heaven. Well, we will see this book of life throughout scripture. There are several (laughs) passages. We'll not open up to all of them. But I do want to talk about it for just a moment. As we have said here, that there is only one church, right? It's the church that Jesus Christ has bought with his own blood. And we view it scripturally, theologically, from two perspectives. We view it from the heavenly perspective. And when we're viewing it from the heavenly perspective or from God's perspective, we call it the invisible church because it's not known particularly to us. And that same church we view from the, the side that God has given to us, which is an objective thing that he's put into our hands to handle, and we call that the visible church. And there is a connection between them, as we will see later on in our passage. We won't have time today for this. But we do realize, don't we, that there's a role, R-O-L-L, not R-O-L-E, not function, but role, R-O-L-L. There's a, there's a list of names written in heaven. That's what it says here. The church of the firstborn ones whose names are written in heaven. We'll find that called the book of life in Revelation chapter 20. We just recently read through the book of Revelation. It should be fairly fresh in your mind. There's a time when the final judgment takes place that there, is, that there are these books that are opened. And it says that every man will be judged out of the books. What are the books? Well, I don't know exactly. Uh, I think anyone that tells you they know exactly that they've really overstepped. But I think what is being said here is that there are books that are kept in the mind of God that are a record of everything that we've ever done. Everything that we've done. Every thought, every word, every deed. Anybody besides me trembling yet? Every thought, every word, every deed. The Apostle Paul will say, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He immediately follows that with knowing the terror of the Lord. Right? So on that last and great day when Christ returns and the final judgment takes place, Christ will sit on that glorious white throne and he will open the books. And everyone, the the dead, the small and the great, Revelation tells us that they will be judged out of the books. The things that we've done and thought that we have thought were in secret. Well, there's nothing hidden that shall not be revealed, Jesus says. Sobering, isn't it, to think about that? Yet, there are those who would deny the resurrection today and the judgment. Right? We don't want to live in that world. We want to live in the world where we know that one day we will give account for our deeds. This is good discipline and policing over our souls to remember that we will give account to the Lord. So then everyone that is judged out of the books, which is the dead, the small, and the great, that is everyone that ever lived, um, they will be judged out of those books and it will become patently obvious that none of us can be saved by works. But then there'll be another book opened. It's called the book of life. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he shall be cast into the lake of fire based on the conviction that he has suffered under in the judgment of the books. A thousand, beloved, shall fall by thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. 
Why? Because your name will be found written in the book of life. What is the book of life but the heavenly archetype of the role that we have here on earth? We want our name on that role that is here on earth because that's the role that God has given us to deal with. There, were, there, there have been days in my past, in my Christian past, when I didn't understand such things as that. No one took the time to explain them to me. That there is a role and there, there's a reason for that role. And so every time you open to those parts of Scripture that you're tempted to run roughshod over, I call them the genealogies. Maybe you do too. Let's remember what they're for. We have a genealogy in Scripture at various points, don't we? At every one of those points where you see these genealogies, there's a particular usefulness for them. They tell the people of God who's who. Who are the Levites that are able to minister? Who belongs in this part of the land? Who belongs in that part of the land? Can you register your genealogy such that when Christ is born, Joseph and Mary must travel back to Bethlehem because that's where their genealogy is reckoned. That's where they belong. What what does that book on earth tell us? It tells us where we belong. Your children are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Lord willing, maybe next week we'll have such a baptism as that. And they receive a certificate from the church that their child was baptized and their name goes on the roll of this church. That doesn't mean they're saved, right? But this is the earthly reflection of the heavenly archetype. This is a church, beloved, of the firstborn ones whose names are written in heaven. And I'll just say it very simply this way. If our names are written in heaven, shall they not also be written in the earthly archetype and the roles there? What do we say in our confession of faith? That outside the visible church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. Why? Because in the visible church is what? All of these things that we've been talking about. The general assembly, the worship, the fellowship, the watch care, the preaching of the word, the role, the encouragements. And those are the means of salvation, beloved. And if we will live lightly upon those means, well then, we will hardly be saved. How does Peter put it? If the righteous are scarcely saved. I think we don't believe that. I think we believe that we can come and go as we please very often. Oh, perhaps not this group. Maybe others. Or maybe ourselves. Certainly we can all tune up in our understanding of the importance of the visible church. Well, I've come to the end of my time. So next week we will talk about God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee thankful to take our place among the church of the firstborn, the general assembly, the place where there is the innumerable company of angels, the place where Thou art the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, Jesus the mediator of the New Testament, and so on. We thank Thee that this is a blessed place. We remember 
the words of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, where he said, How dreadful is this place. This is nothing else than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Oh Lord, help us to have that same conception here. And Lord, we pray that thou wouldst encourage us with the the establishment of the visible church in this world. That it may be that encouragement that we might continue through these helps and means and through these graces that thou dost supply, Lord, that thou wouldst preserve us to the end and bring us finally to glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.